The Onyx One Month DAP program evaluated Resolute Onyx DES in about 1,700 complex high bleed and risk patients with one month DAP. Visit Medtronic.com backslash Onyx One program to see the data. Resolute Onyx DES is not currently indicated for high bleed and risk patients on one month DAP in the United States. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for December 2020. This is my favorite episode of the year. Rather than letting you listen to a bunch of doctors talking about what became our top stories this month, I turn my microphone on the TCTMD reporters themselves, which they don't exactly love. As a general rule, they prefer to ask questions, not answer them. But every December, I ask each of them in turn to tell me what story or stories stands out for them from the year gone by. There was so much to choose from this year, not just because of COVID-19, but also all the ways in which cardiology care was affected by the pandemic, not to mention all of the important advances that might have been eclipsed by the coronavirus if we weren't also keeping an eye on the cardiology literature. For me, my coverage of the so-called missing STEMIs, back before any other major journal or newspaper had dug into the numbers, is probably the piece I'm most proud of for this year. That led to a series of other stories looking at what the long-term impact might be for all of those patients who tried to ignore their symptoms or who showed up far later than physicians these days are accustomed to seeing. Not everything the TCTMD reporters had to tell me stemmed from the pandemic, however. Let's jump in. All right. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm all right. What story do you want to tell me about today? Um, I thought it would be good to talk about this German autopsy study. It was one of the first COVID autopsy studies that was published. And, um, you know, it was, it was interesting. It was when I first looked at it after you assigned it to me, I remember seeing that it was only 12 patients. And I thought, did I do something to make Shelly mad? Why is she giving me you know, this, because under normal circumstances, we don't write about studies and only have 12 patients. So autopsy studies, I don't know that we do much of that in cardiovascular disease coverage as a rule. So yeah, okay, I'm sorry, I made you feel that way. No, it was a it was a good thing. Because, you know, very rapidly, we were all realizing that things weren't, it wasn't normal times anymore, right. And so that study was more important than I realized, because it was really the first glimpse that anyone had um, of these crazy heavy lung weights they were reporting or three to four times average postmortem weights. And that study was followed by many similar ones um, that had maybe like six patients, nine patients. And it really got to the point where I was surprised when I was seeing anything that was more than like 20 patients. But for me, the study was a jumping off point to learn more about pathology because as a cardiovascular writer like you said it it isn't something that we're super familiar with um so that was interesting and this those studies were some of the first to really confirm that these clots and microclotting was happening in every organ of the body and it wasn't just the lungs and it wasn't necessarily that the virus was infiltrating the heart but that there was this whole clotting component of COVID-19. So yeah it was pretty fascinating and and it did rely on some of those early autopsy reports for us to see that. It did and you know I think one thing that stood out for me in talking with the pathologists was that I was getting 
the view of COVID from them, like this sort of like granular viewpoint that I hadn't been familiar with and that I don't think most people got to see this year. I was seeing it from their point of view and also seeing the pathologists working on their own in different parts of the world were really putting together uh, an internal picture of COVID, one small data set at a time. And they were telling me that they were informing each other's work in real time. And that was really a, a kind of an ex exciting thing to be a part of. Yeah, I think we've all felt that way, doing that pivot from covering exclusively cardiovascular disease to covering so much COVID-19 as we felt really at the front of that process of discovery in a way that journalists don't usually get a chance to do. But it also helped it feel meaningful because certainly I continued to give you the COVID-19 autopsy studies to cover. I didn't spread the wealth around to the rest of the team. And we do that with other things. You know, we have people have their designated areas of specialization within the specialization of cardiology. And at a certain point, I was worried that I should stop giving these to you, that it was hard for you to always be writing about death. But what I'm hoping is that you felt a little bit of what I felt, which is that having more understanding about this actually helped. Can you speak to that? Do you, are you still cursing me for giving you these assignments over and over again? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, as a matter of fact, I mean, I think that I'm probably the only one in our department who began my career back in the time of AIDS. It was the middle of the AIDS crisis, and it was a very scary time for everyone. And it was this year brought me back to that because there's so much uncertainty and the pathologists and, and everybody working in this field were trying to bring more clarity to this issue so that they could understand it better. And, and that it really took me back to the 80s to when everybody was just so uncertain what they were looking at. And it's, it's actually kind of exciting to be a part of something like that that's starting from the bottom and trying to create a picture to understand a disease. And, and that's where my head was at this whole year with that. It was taking me back 30 years to when I was a young kid learning about AIDS and, and therapies that were being developed. Yeah, well, I have to say thank you to you and the rest of the team, but I think we've all felt that we've been helping to get the word out and helping to inform people and keep abreast of the research. So not only for the autopsy papers that you've covered, but all of your news and features over this whole period have been certainly much appreciated. So thanks for telling us about this, Laura. Sure, no problem. You can find all of Laura's coverage of the evolving autopsy story in people who passed away from COVID-19 on our COVID-19 hub. Find that at tctmd.com slash COVID-19, no hyphen. Next up in the hot seat is Caitlin Cox. Hi, Caitlin. Hey, how are you? Not so bad. What kind of story from 2020 do you want to tell me about? Funnily enough, my favorite story was something to do, nothing to do with COVID. Uh, it was about the med bikini backlash on Twitter that happened midsummer. Um, and I, you know, I don't know at the time, I think part of what drew me to it was the fact that it wasn't about the pandemic and it allowed me to just totally pull back from that. But it required some creativity because basically it was about the reactions that had already happened on Twitter to a journal piece on um, online behaviors of physicians. I remember it. This caused a bit of an uproar. Just to remind people what the med bikini hashtag was. 
Yeah, so basically it was a study in the Journal of Vascular Surgery, and what they did was they looked at the online presence of physicians in training and counted all these different things that were considered problematic or potentially problematic. And one of the criteria was pictures and underwear, provocative Halloween costumes, and provocative posing in bikinis and swimwear. And so in response, one medical student uh, started posting photos of herself in a bikini with the hashtag medbikini and really took off. About a week after she did it, there were like 350,000 hits for the hashtag. And they were mostly men, but sometimes men. And they were posing themselves being like totally normal and showing how they were humans apart from their work in healthcare. It was really, it was a big, big response. So Caitlin, tell me a little bit about who was posting with that med bikini hashtag. Was it all pictures of women in swimwear or what else was going on? You know, the most of it was, to be honest. Um, there were also women who posted without the photos, uh, just showing solidarity for their colleagues. But there were also a few men. Um, among them, my favorite was a zombie doctor Halloween costume, just showing that there are a lot of different ways that you can express yourself as a human and being a doctor as well. This was really people making the point that they are human beings as well as doctors. Exactly. And because part of what was being attacked, as I recall, was that this was actually people's private social media feeds as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, the, and then the idea that people couldn't, especially women, be, um, heaven forbid, posting pictures to their friends of them having a glass of wine out for dinner or uh, wearing a bikini uh, when you're out on some water body. <laughs> so it was yeah. an interesting one. But I know it's kind of stayed with you because we're looking now at our end of year series of stories that um, all of us have been working on. And you've decided to look at this issue of whether physicians should have a voice, should have an opinion, should start a hashtag like MedBikini in order to speak up about some personal view. Do you want to just tell me a little bit, uh, and our audience, of course, what you wanted to look at with that feature story? Well, it's a big topic, honestly. And um, depending on who I spoke with, I spoke with five people. They each had a different take on it. But it basically, broadly, was about physicians and humanity, both their own and then their patients. And um, it seems like one of the best qualities of the profession is the human touch. And that's been challenged this year in COVID. And people have been adapting to that. But at the same time, there are these larger world events that physicians are being drawn out more into the public sphere and having to decide whether they're going to have a voice on social media or in the media, in the news media, or among their peers on things outside their comfort zone. Uh, So the story explores whether that's appropriate, uh, whether it's productive, and what positive lessons might have been learned over the course of this hard year. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic. And certainly the stereotype of the physician is the one who's got a sort of considered medical opinion, but doesn't speak to other points. And I think um, both the Med Bikini story as, as well as this feature that you've pulled together do look at that notion of whether we can think of our doctors as human beings as well. Thanks for thank looking you. into it, Caitlin. And thanks for telling me about it today. Oh, thank you. A search of hashtag MedBikini will pull up Caitlin's original story from last summer, as well as the feature story she wrote as part of our Envision Change series at the end of the year, trying to imagine how the world might look different after the year we've just had. Caitlin's feature is titled, From Heroes to Humans, How Doctors Found Their Voices in 2020. All right, Mike, uh, tell me, what story do you want to talk about? What, What stands out from the past year? I I wrote a series of stories on Excel, again, 
you know, I think this is the longest sort of running saga of something I've ever covered before. But I mean, this year was a little bit different in the sense of the missing MI data was the stuff that slowly leaked out. So first in the New England Journal of Medicine, letter to the editor, and then finally in a, in a larger follow-up paper published by the Excel group. And I guess I started to really see a, a divide between some surgeons and uh, interventional cardiologists, particularly on social media. Some of the, the interpretations of the, story, of the study itself was, was quite hostile. But at the same time, I don't want to paint too broad a brush in terms of that sort of quote-unquote turf war because I think social media is really not a great fair representation of what goes on in clinical practice. And from what I've heard, a lot of the heart teams do work very well together in terms of the surgeons and the interventional cardiologists. I do think we've heard from enough surgeons that they also think that you're doing a, a really fair job with what has been a really controversial story. And when we do see some people sticking their, their necks out a bit and, and critiquing not only the trial, but also our coverage of it. I think that's been a sticking point for both you and me, because I sometimes feel guilty that I end up assigning the Excel stories to you, but you have just done such a, a good job with them all, and you, you're aware of all the different nuances, be it MI definitions, be it the mortality endpoint, all the things that have come up. So. I wanted to interject to say thanks for that because I know it hasn't always been easy. But um, let's just go back to your, your what you were saying about social media because you actually did a feature that related to this a little bit called Trial by Twitter. That ties into all of this Excel coverage as well, doesn't it? Totally. It's um, It was a story I wrote back in March of this year, which seems like uh, five years ago at this stage. And I talked to a lot of people just sort of about their experiences with uh, social media. I remember talking to one cardiologist, Mark Dweck, in Scotland, and he was part of the Scott Hart trial that was, I wouldn't say hammered on social media, but there were a lot of people that took exception to sort of the MI benefit that they, they saw in Scott Hart. I hope I'm getting these study names correct. Dr. Dreck was really quite great, great about it all. You know, he, he knew there were questions about the study and he responded on Twitter and he said that was usually about the extent of it. You know, it went back and forth and people were passionate about the, the findings and the results, but he actually thought that people were really respectful from both sides of the aisle, whether it would be imaging experts or sort of interventional cardiologists or general cardiologists. And um, he said that in this day and age, when you publish a big study on in the New England Journal of Medicine or present something at a major medical meeting, you do have to be prepared to defend it. And while that's always been the case, now you have to defend it in real time on Twitter. It's just part of cardiology or research that's changed and everybody seems to be getting by. Yeah, and in the case of Scott Hart and Mark Dweck, and then it happened again with Valentina Puntman with some CMR data that came out and that's right. COVID in the heart and, and people are finding errors in papers and posting them on Twitter. And in the case of Scott Hart, you know, they actually got the error corrected very, very quickly, much faster than they would have had it been 
um, through the traditional channels. So I think um, your feature kind of uncovered both the good and the bad of, of people squawking about things on social media. So yeah, it's a good one. People should go back and check it out for sure. I actually thought people would be quite down on social media, you know, and, but they actually weren't. Even the people that had come under fire, you know, I wouldn't say under fire, but you know, people that had faced sort of questions or criticisms about a study design or an analysis of the paper, they were even quite positive on social media, calling it yeah. a force for good somebody saying well you and I have also taken some criticism on social media just to get back to excel for a moment but um, I think if anything social media helps to point out things that are needed and in other cases gives you a chance to also stand up for yourself we've seen lots of cardiologists go to and fro with different things that way but we've got more stuff planned for excel coming up we're not done writing about that one so all of these stories yeah. you'll be back covering again in 2021 thanks for telling me about sure. some of them Mike. my pleasure Take care. Search the phrase trial by Twitter on TCTMD and that will pull up Mike's feature story, which we ran March 3rd of 2020. As for Mike's ongoing coverage of all the controversy over the Excel trial, don't miss it. I do believe he's doing the most fair and balanced reporting on this subject you can find, despite the fact that TCTMD is, yes, published by the Cardiovascular Research Foundation, the same organization that did so much of the data management and analysis for the Excel trial. What's kind of funny is that the stories we've written that have generated the most heat and accusations of bias from critics on Twitter are exactly the same stories that make me fear for my job. It's a credit to CRF that no one has ever interfered with our editorial firewall, although I'm sure they haven't always been happy about our coverage. For the record, I have no more idea what goes on in the clinical trials division of the organization than I do Santa's workshop. As I mentioned, we've got more planned in our Excel coverage for 2021. All right, Todd. Well, thank you for talking on the Heart Sounds podcast with me. Um, I wanted to say, you know, all of us have been doing a lot of interesting feature stories this year. So many ideas coming out of COVID-19. So first off, thanks for, for pursuing some of those ideas. Looking, for example, at whether more senior physicians would have to step back, which was an interesting idea. Others, any? Putting you on the spot here a little bit. It's definitely been interesting to sort of step out of the realm of cardiology a bit this year to cover some different things. And that one of the, I guess it wasn't totally unique, you know, most, most places had stories like this, but the one story that I felt was pretty important to get out early on and that, you know, I enjoyed working on was one, just speaking to a bunch of people early on during the pandemic about the shortage of PPE. It was interesting and, you know, somewhat discouraging to hear that people were having such trouble just getting basic equipment like masks in the hospitals. And that was a you know, that was a story that I felt was important for me to, to write early on. That's exactly the kind of thing is I think as we all decided we were going to cover more COVID-19 content, even before we saw the amount of an impact that was going to be on the heart, you and others have come up with things to pursue in terms of just phoning up busy doctors and asking them about it. So I do really appreciate that. And it's definitely made for some, I think, some fun journalism, but also some really interesting reads for the site. Uh, but that wasn't the only thing I tasked you with. You also signed on early in the process for our COVID-19 daily dispatch, which I don't think either of us thought would be going for the whole year. Tell me a bit about that. This is day in, day out, except for the weekends. You have been reviewing the journals and reviewing the policy announcements to put this together. Do you regret ever saying yes to this? <laughs> uh, no, I don't regret it, actually. And I went back just earlier to see when the actual first day of the dispatch was. It was March 23rd. Um, and definitely back then, I didn't expect 
that it would last even this long. And there's really, as far as I can tell, no end in sight, at least for the next couple months. It's not something that I anticipated would take up as much time as it has or, or last as long, but it's, it's been something that I've enjoyed doing again because it, it sort of takes me out of, you know, the cardiology focus that I've been working in the last several years. And it's it's also been good to just sort of keep up on on what's going on with the pandemic because it would it would be easy to sort of let the focus slip off of that or, or not really be aware of everything that's going on in that space, you know, just with the the day-to-day work and, and family, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I've been the one editing this every day, and then on the on the rare times that you've taken a break, I've usually been the one to step up and do it. And I have to say, I haven't regretted being able to keep on top of it day to day. I I feel like there's just so many unknowns, and and so many of our friends and colleagues are really feeling like they're drowning in this information. But having the kind of steady information flow that's come through your daily dispatch, I've actually found it comforting. It's not quite the right word, but that's sort of what it's been. And so I hope it's been that for you as well. I agree. And, and you know, I should should thank you. And, and Laura and Caitlin have also stepped in to, to help cover this over the last several months. But I, I'm the same way. It's It doesn't, at times I thought maybe, you know, maybe it would get overwhelming to just be thinking about this for at least a couple hours every single yeah, day. Yeah, drag you down potentially. Yeah. But being able to just stay on top of all the, the latest information, it, it is somewhat comforting just to know exactly what's going on and, and it eliminates some of that, the fear of the unknown. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly we've seen the numbers tick up on it gradually as the months have gone by. And I think for the past few months, it's been at least the top story or in the top three. So thanks so much for all the work that's taken. And um, I do look forward to um, us retiring it at some point, but for the foreseeable future, you're stuck with it. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's not a problem. Maybe for at least a couple more months, and, and maybe sometime in the spring, we can we can think about pulling back on it. Yeah, we'll have a big celebration and pull the plug. All right. Well, right. thanks for telling me about it, Todd. All right. Thanks. You don't have to look far for Todd's daily dispatch. It's always on the homepage, and as I keep exhorting people to do, bookmark the story and check it every day for short, timely updates. You'll feel good about it. Being well informed. I promise you. I hope you'll also check out some of the other work we did to round out the year. This was far and away the most difficult year I've ever had as a health journalist. And I say that with my eyes wide open and my heart full for all the clinicians and other frontline folks who've put lives at risk, lost patients, lost loved ones, and have fallen sick themselves while I sat comfortably at home in my track pants, weeping over something I was only experiencing secondhand. I know I speak for my whole team when I say that this was also a year where our ideas for stories felt constantly creative, the work itself was done at a pace that felt invigorating and important. And to all those busy doctors I mentioned earlier, who took time out of their days to share what they were seeing and doing, giving the voices that make the difference between a good story and a great one, thank you a million times over. This podcast is produced by Dan Goodman in the CRF Multimedia Studios. Thank you, Dan! Huge thanks also to Caitlin Cox, Michael O'Reardon, Todd Neal, Laura McEwen, and Yael Maxwell for all your hard work year-round. You guys make this job worth doing. Is anyone out there in podcast land even listening on the second to last day of December 2020 of all years? My birthday, if you must know. I hope so, and if not, catch you back here in 2021.
Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne and Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.